does it feel like to exercise power as a Christian? What's the Bible got to say about government and power? What's the vocation of speaking truth to power? How does our identity as a child of God shape our engagement with politics? And what difference does it make to pray for political opponents? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Baroness Maeve Sherlock OBE. Maeve is a Labour Party life peer and Shadow Minister for Work and Pensions in the House of Lords. She's also Assistant Curate at St Nicholas Church, Durham, and a Fellow of St Chad's College. And our question today is, What theology of government can serve us well today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Maeve Sherlock, welcome to Talking Theology. It's lovely to be here, Philip. Thank you for asking me. Now, Maeve, you've had a number of roles over the years. You've been president of the National Union of Students, chief executive of the Refugee Council and the National Council for One Parent Families, You worked as a special advisor to Gordon Brown when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. You're now a member of the House of Lords and a a shadow minister. Our topic today is government. How has your experience of and approach to government and power changed over the years and and with those different roles? I think I've seen it from all angles now. And it's sometimes when I think about it, it reminds me of that Indian proverbial story about a group of blind men encountering an elephant for the first time. And the one who ends up picking up the trunk says it's like a snake. And the one who finds the leg thinks it's a tree trunk. And the one who picks the tusk thinks it's hard and like a spear. And it very much depends where you look at it, because all of those things are true. I think power is not a single thing and it's not a static thing. So I think it depends both on your stance to it, but also the way that you relate to it and what you intend to do about it. Most people, in my experience, have much more power or at least more influence, more capacity to influence things than they realise. Conversely, I've met MPs whom everybody assumes are incredibly powerful and individuals sometimes feel very powerless. So I I think I've become more inured to the idea that power is fixed and more open to the idea that it's a fluid dynamic thing which we can engage with. Can you give a few examples, perhaps? What did it feel like when you were on the NUS or what did it feel like now as a member of the House of Lords? That sort of balance between power and influence. Do you think you have times when you've overestimated the influence or underestimated the influence that you had? Both regularly. (laughs) One of the things that I learned at NUS was the power of a case well made and equally the limitations of a case well made. Um, I'm now a member of the House of Lords and one of the reasons I was happy to go into it is that during my NUS days, I was president of the NUS during a Conservative government with a large majority and we could make the best case in the world and because they had a huge majority, they could vote it down. But I found that members of the House of Lords of whatever party, if you could go in and make a good evidence-based case, you could get a hearing. And so we could raise things in a way that we would struggle to do elsewhere. Equally, I've found that there have been times, for example, when I was running charities working for single parents and then refugees and asylum seekers, who at the times were somehow the hate figures of their day in the popular press, where again, you couldn't get a hearing in public, but you could if you went into the right places and found the right way. Conversely, there have been times when I was an advisor in government when I think I overestimated 
underestimated how easy it is to change things. So one of the things you learn is you learn what the levers are. And when you're in government, it's like before that, you want to open a window, you reach over and open a window. When you're in government, it's a bit like those windows they had in my primary school, where they're really high up and you need a really big pole to open them. And eventually you have to kind of maneuver into place and do it. And you can do it. And when you do, boy, it's a big window and a lot of air comes in. But it's quite takes quite a lot of maneuvering to get there. And you may need somebody to help you, especially if you're quite small. It's a very large window pole. So something there about collaboration, about engagement, about understanding what your levers are and slowly learning how to use them. And sometimes you do that by using them and finding they don't open the door very well, but they do open the window. It's a wonderful set of images there. Thank you, Maeve. You've also, as well as having those leadership roles over the years, you've also gone on a journey of faith. Give us a sense about how that journey came about. Oh, like that was just totally weird. I grew up in a kind of Irish uh, Roman Catholic family in the UK of the sort who never missed mass on a Sunday and never really talked about God in between Sundays. But I did go to a Catholic convent school for 10 years. So I left 18 having basically been effectively, if I'm honest, vaccinated against religion. And I didn't go into a church until I was 45, apart from the occasional wedding or baptism for friends. And so when I was in middle age, I basically developed a weird desire to go into a church, but I didn't know any churches. I didn't really know any Christians. And so I ended up just wandering into the only church that I'd been into because they sold charity Christmas cards. And that was kind of scary. Anyway, long story short, they were doing an alpha course. I did it and and had an encounter of God, which was extraordinary and which changed everything. But it was wonderful, but um, pretty, <laughs> pretty challenging at the time. And that journey led you in time to ordain ministry in the Church of England. You're ordained. And so you're one of the, the few people in the House of Lords other than the bishops who are ordained as well as being a, a peer. Yeah, there are a few of us. I, I'm on the Labour benches. Stephen Green, Lord Green of Hurstpeer Point, is ordained on the Conservative benches. I have a Methodist minister colleague, Leslie Griffiths, and then there are bishops and retired bishops. So that's been really interesting. I mean, I, I was only ordained in 2018, so I've been in the Lords for eight years before I was ordained, and I'm feeling my way through what that means. But it's been an absolute joy. Apart from anything else, I got to do, I think in the end, my second baptism was twins in the Houses of Parliament. It should have been my first, but my lovely training incumbent said, maybe it might be best if your first baptism weren't twins of the Houses of Parliament. So we agreed that was the case. So I got to baptise a lovely little girl in my home church first. That's been wonderful. And I get to do lots of amazing stuff with other Christians in Parliament. It's brilliant. So you're well placed, Maeve, therefore, to comment on theology and the exercise of government and power. Let's start at the beginning, if we can. What are the core assumptions that you as a Christian keep coming back to as you think about the role of government and the exercise of power? I think the core assumption for me is about how and why you exercise power. And there is nothing, I think, in intrinsically wrong with power. I mean, power is a reality and somebody needs to hold it in society. The question is, on whose behalf do you exercise it and in what way do you exercise it? For example, Jesus in the Bible, we know all authority on heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. How does Jesus exercise that power? By washing his disciples' feet, by speaking up for those who are marginalised, by engaging with those that nobody else takes seriously. So I think the assumption for me is that if you have access to power, then your duty is to discharge that in a way that benefits those who are most marginalised and least able to speak up for themselves. Let's think, therefore, about some of those biblical resources that we might use for thinking about government and power from the perspective of faith. You mentioned the example of Jesus, but are there other both examples from the Gospels or indeed from the wider biblical landscape that you found helpful in terms of thinking about government from the perspective of faith? 
When I started thinking about government and faith, I found myself thinking initially about those bits of the Bible like Romans 13, which talk explicitly about how Christians should submit to authority. But in fact, over the years, I realised that the whole of the Bible speaks to us about this. It's about the whole biblical narrative. So, for example, the Pentateuch has lots to teach us about nation building. In fact, my good friend Russell Rook always says that the whole of the Old Testament is a guide to nation building, the good, the bad and the ugly. And the whole of the New Testament is about community building, likewise, the good, the bad and the ugly. And so that takes you into saying the Pentateuch talks to you about nation building, about the rule and the spirit of law, about covenant, about relationship, but also that there are lots of other ways. I mean, you could talk about judges, you could talk about the prophetic traditions, you could talk even about the apocalyptic tradition about responding to despotic rulers, etc. So there's something anywhere in the Bible you open up, and increasingly every time I open it, I find it speaks into my current situation. So what I'm hearing, therefore, is rather than seeing the Bible as a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to power, rather it's a landscape in which power kind of dots up in all sorts of different places, from, as you say, the role of kings in the Old Testament to the this kind of where the rulers in the New Testament are kind of stage left, aren't they? Either seen as people you should bow down to from Romans 13 or Revelation 13, where they're seen as the great evil. And there's really kind of no fixed point in the landscape, but rather a set of resources that perhaps speak to Christians at different times and in different ways. That's very well put, Philip. Tell me, therefore, which passages do you find most helpful in your current role in thinking about your role as a peer and your position within the legislature of the UK? Which passages do you find sort of think, well, that speaks to my role particularly powerfully? To be honest, it depends what I'm doing, really. My starting point, I think, is the question is, why are we doing what we're doing? And I would go to one John. We love because he loved us first. So for me, the starting point is that for me, my political life is actually an outworking of my vocation. I regard, I mean, if you think of the five marks of mission of the Anglican Communion about challenging unjust structures, in fact, at least three of the five marks of mission which the Anglican Communion has would go to that space. I love all the discussion in various parts of the Old Testament about prioritising the widow and the orphan, about the resident alien, about reaching out to those whom society doesn't treat well, who doesn't see as being part of their core responsibilities. And I think those are the things that most speak to me in the way I do my job at the moment. But the final bit, I suppose, at the moment, for example, I'm about to record a sermon for my own church, St Nick's on Sunday, and we're preaching a series in the evening on 1 Peter, and I'm preaching on 1 Peter 4. And in that, of course, Peter is talking to this community of resident aliens. And I found as I began to write the sermon that I've ended up in the space of talking about what does truth mean in an era of moral relativism? What does that mean for politics? Because one of the things, of course, one of the reasons those early Christians got so much grief was not just because they worshipped their God, was because they didn't have everybody else worship their own God. So the pagans were like, fine, you worship whoever you want, but you know, don't be telling us we can't worship ours. All our gods are valid. What's your problem? And there's something in modern day society about the nature of truth we can all think of leaders who say things that are demonstrably untrue, but assert them to be true. The biggest challenge in a world of, I suppose, of moral relativism is to declare anything's an absolute truth. And yet some things are true, whether or not someone believes them. And one of those things is God. You articulated the range of biblical resources for thinking about power and government. There's a perennial debate, isn't there, within Western democracies about whether government should be something that's broadly big or small. That is to say, is the job of government to get out of the way as much so that business can flourish and community can be built that way? Or or is government meant to be something that's able to support on a large scale throughout our communities? You could articulate it as a hands-on or a hands-off approach. Do you find there are faith perspectives that help you think about that balance between big and small government? Well, yes and no. 
I think for most of the church's history, it's had an argument going on about whether the purpose of government is morality or stability. Is the aim to try to make people better and the world a better place, or is it simply to maintain a minimum amount of order so that life can flourish? And people have taken both views throughout history. I mean, you can go back to Augustine or or Aquinas, to Calvin, to Luther, and they're still having the same debate today. My favourite place where that debate is articulated is actually in Yes Minister. There's a wonderful episode of Yes Minister called Whiskey Priest, in which Jim Hacker is articulating. Jim Hacker is the hapless minister, and he's saying the purpose of government is morality. And then Sir Humphrey, his permanent secretary, comes back and says, of course it's not minister. He said, well, what is it about? And he's quite clear that actually the purpose of government is stability. It's about keeping things going, preventing anarchy, stopping society society falling to bits, still being here tomorrow. And Hacker says, what for? What's the ultimate purpose of government if it isn't for doing good? And so my view, the purpose of government is for doing good. That doesn't mean that the government has to do all the good. And actually, I think the arguments about big and small state, to be honest, for me are fairly sterile ones. Clearly, you don't want a state so small that you can't function. And there are times, and I think this is the current time, but we're talking in the middle of the COVID crisis. Now, nobody right now is wishing we had a small state. Nobody's wishing we didn't have an NHS. Nobody's wishing we didn't have a a treasury willing to put on furlough a quarter of the workforce and pay 80% of their wages. Nobody's wishing we didn't have a welfare state where they could put extra money in to get it to those who need it, albeit not enough in my view. So I think we need a state big enough to be able to wield the tools that are necessary to protect those who are most vulnerable from the effects of it. How much you need will depend on how fair your society is. If your society is structured well and fairly, you may need less intervention from the centre. If you've allowed a lot of inequality and injustice to develop, there is a greater need for the centre to intervene. And a related question, therefore, you talked about this relationship between government and power, and you said that people perhaps have more power influence than they might imagine, and some people have less than they like to think of themselves. How does faith change that relationship between kind of those who have positional power and those without There's a lovely line in a great book by Bishop Graham Tomlin, who talks about power and priesthood. And he says, your leadership is borrowed, not owned. Priestly leadership understand its authority to be loaned for the purpose of blessing, not owned for the purpose of power. And I think that, for me, is one of the things that began to shift it. I mean, mean, I'd always felt that the power had to be used in the right way. But that understanding, for a priest, for example, any power that God gives you is simply loaned and you're using it to bless others. You are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. As Abraham was blessed, it was in order that he might bless the generations that came thereafter. And so I think that has affected me trying to constantly check the way that I'm using that power and remembering constantly that all power comes from God. And that any blessings I've been given are blessings not for my own benefit, but to be used for other people. And don't get me wrong, I mess this up all the time and I make lots of mistakes. But that's the narrative I have for myself. That's the challenge I try to put to myself. And it's also the challenge, I think, that we all should be trying to put to ourselves, looking at the power we've been given. And, and do we recognise explicitly that it's been loaned? Because if we do recognise it's been loaned, like all of our gifts, if we recognise those gifts have come from God, then we end up depending on God to help us work through what we're doing. And the glory goes to God, of course. We end up pointing to God and not to ourselves. As you say, that view is quite radical in the sense it relies on this fact that everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have, as you say, is a loan from the one who has all power himself, really. Our state in the UK has that structured into it in terms of the role of the monarch and the monarch under God. To what extent do you think that's sometimes overlooked in the way that we understand our own political system? 
Oh, totally. <laughs> um, although, ironically, we, every day in the Lords, we start proceedings with prayers, as does the Commons. The Commons, they're read by the Speaker's chaplain and the Lords by the duty bishop. And the prayers talk about authority coming from God and the fact that we are then urged to set aside our partiality and our own interests and to use that power in that way. So it's actually built into our constitution. But I think people often don't see it that way. They presume that all the power lies with the government. Increasingly, in fact, they assume all the power lies with the Prime Minister. I think increasingly we're behaving as though we have a presidential system, because in fact, we really don't. And I think our system is actually much healthier. I think the cabinet system recognises that power should be a group of people coming together and naturally pulling in different directions and reaching some sort of healthy tension. And I think that feels to me important. But there are different elements of the constitution. For example, I'm an opposition peer. Now, in lots of ways, that means I have remarkably little power. I mean, I have the ability to raise matters for debate. I have the ability to vote on questions. But if I'm in a parliament where there is a huge majority in either house, then my ability to influence things is limited to my capacity to argue for them and to use that space to be able to do it. But what I can do is scrutinise things and push back on them. I can check things, I can challenge. And there are lots of clear biblical models for that. The prophets, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but the whole prophetic tradition is about challenging and scrutiny and saying, are you sure you're doing this right? And even if you don't succeed in the end, that's a really important task to be done because it means people shouldn't be exercising power unchecked. So if people start to get overweening senses of their own power and they think it's them and they think it's all down to them, then at least the system has built in ways in which that's checked and held to account. Let's talk about that a bit more because it seems to be within the Old Testament you have these two very dominant narratives, which is the narrative of the king and then the narrative of the prophet. And I guess in certain stories like David and Bathsheba, you have them coming very closely together with Nathan challenging the king for his behaviour. And then in the prophetic literature, you have the kind of oracles against the various kings. Just talk to us, if you wouldn't mind, a bit more about why do you think that's a particularly helpful theological sort of balance to be struck, not only for you, but you know, for us more generally thinking about power? We only have one perfect person who managed to be priest, prophet and king, the three roles in the Bible, and that was Jesus. And and so one of the great joys for me of coming to faith was realising that it wasn't my job to save the world, that someone else had got there first. And my job was simply to do my bit and try and point to that rather than thinking I had to do it all myself. So for most people, I think they will find their natural gifts lead them into one of those spaces, or probably more importantly, their calling is into one of those spaces, their vocation is into one of those spaces. And sometimes you find people and you can see instantly they're just in the wrong space. There are people who are kings who are really ought to be prophets and people who are prophets who actually ought to be in there being kings. And I think the modern day translation of this is I wouldn't assume that those who fulfill the, the equivalent modern day things of kings are bad and prophets good. I mean, that's not the point. The point is these are both roles which have to be fulfilled. So understanding that somebody has to wield authority and that others have to challenge that to make sure it's done in a way that's just and to test it, I just think is a really important part of our system. And it's also a challenge for all of us. I mean, Christians are called to stand up and bear witness to injustices that they find. And people find different places to do that. But every time we challenge the unjust structures, that's a prophetic act. If it's done because we feel we're called to do that, to stand up and to speak up for those who can't speak it for themselves. And so I think that's a role that lots of Christians play at lots of different levels in society. Some people just find they're doing it in politics. And I would love to see more Christians coming into politics, both to exercise power as justly as they can and to submit themselves to that kind of prophetic challenge and to acknowledge and accept it will make them better governors if they do so. But also on the other side, coming in to push and to challenge and to try to make things better. Do you think it's possible to have those vocations together? In other words, to be both somebody who has a king role and a profit role at the same time? And is that vocation something that can be held? 
I think there are elements of both of those in most of our lives. I mean, Philip, you're a priest and you're the head of a theological college. You exercise power within that institution. You also, as a priest, preach, you speak out, you act in both modes at different times, depending on what you're doing. And so do I. And I think many of us do. But some people, I think, will have a very strong calling to be on the margins, never really to go into the centre. They'd be uncomfortable if they did. Their word might be blunted if they did. As you can imagine, I don't think Nathan would have made as good a king as he did a prophet. I think there are times when David does things which do fit into more than one mould. Even David's repentance, his ability to respond to the challenge that that is brought to him by the prophet, is actually a really powerful prophetic act in itself because it challenges every ruler coming after him. Or, for example, his willingness to dance to be silly before the Lord, his willingness to challenge some of those traditional ways in which power is exercised because he feels that that's what God calls of him or that's how what his appropriate response to God is there. So I think we can all exercise them at different times, but probably most of us are called particularly into one or more role. And also not getting too up ourselves. You know, if I start thinking of myself as a prophet, I'm going to head for trouble in a big way. But it does at least give me a language for thinking about what I do, especially on the days, to be honest, when I I sit in crawling over bits of secondary legislation. Sometimes what I do is really interesting and important. I'm doing primary legislation. I'm standing up for paying more money to people who are poor. And sometimes I sit in a room in the Lords or now on my laptop and I scrutinise the secondary legislation, which determines whether or not the auto-enrolment pension contribution system should apply to offshore workers. That's really important that's done. It's still a form of thing, but it maybe Nathan wouldn't have found it as interesting as I do. It's no surprise, as you've articulated, that there are different political approaches, party political approaches to what good government looks like, and therefore different political parties. But I'm interested in how your experience speaks to the question of how faith and a theological approach can help relativise the difference between political tribes, if you can put it like that. Yes, I've been a member of the Labour Party for a long time, since I was a student. But obviously, one of the things that coming to faith did was make really clear to me where my primary identity lies. My primary identity is as a child of God. I'm first and foremost a Christian, a follower of, of Jesus Christ. Other identities will always be subsumed to that. You know, as Stanley Hauerwas, the American theologian, said, you know, our primary citizenship is in heaven. That said, I think it's quite clear that political parties play an important role. I can't change everything by myself. I mean, I have a clear view as to what I think is right. But I'm sometimes asked how I can possibly, as a Christian, be a member of a political party when that means surely to letting somebody else tell me what to think. And the reality is it doesn't, is that I can either set up the Maeve party in which I get to hold all the positions and decide all the policy and it will have absolutely no effect at all. Or I can band together with other people with whom I share enough in common and then we're together. But that means compromise because it means sometimes their views will win out on some issues and sometimes mine. So, for example, in the House of Lords, I would like to think when we come to vote on social security, my colleagues who are experts in agriculture would take a steer from me as to what I think our best position ought to be. Conversely, when it comes to farming, I'm absolutely happy to be led and guided by my colleagues who know rather more about that than I do, which frankly isn't hard. So I think there are reasons for having political parties in the first place. But one of the things I found when I got to the laws was I was delighted to find how many Christians there were in Parliament. And there are Christians in other parties as well, so that we get together. I'm a vice president of an all-party group called Christians in Parliament. And there are services, there are Bible studies. I host a cross-party weekly Bible study fellowship group in the Lords. I'm in a prayer triplet with a Conservative and a Lib Dem peer, and we meet most weeks and pray together. And that's a really powerful corrective for all of us, because it means I know when I'm out there, I can see that there are people on other benches whom I know to be good Christians who in conscience have reached a different view from me. And it forces me to challenge myself to think sometimes that I might be wrong. But I frequently joke with them that I point out that I regularly pray that they'll come to see things the way God and I see them. But um, in the meantime, I have to accept that there may be a 
and possibly maybe occasions on which other people have a different view and may not be entirely wrong. When we were talking earlier about big and small states, you alluded to the fact that we're recording this episode in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and that there are few people who would be wanting a small state, a small NHS or whatever at the moment. Can I return to that question and ask you more generally, what are you observing about the exercise of government in its broadest sense at this time? And what are we observing? I'm cautious not about asking the question, what's going to be different? Because I think it's probably too soon to ask those questions. But what are you observing? What are you seeing? What are we learning? We are learning, of course, that we need government. I think we're learning both about the power and the limitations of government. We're learning about the ways in which power can be wielded effectively. So, for example, we have seen that we needed the central state to be able to step in to try to protect jobs, to protect the economy, to inject money into the NHS. I think we've seen the great advantage of having a national coordinated NHS because we were able to step in at a national level, pour resources in and make sure everybody could be cared for if they needed hospital treatment as far as possible. I also think we've seen some of the limitations of that. For example, there have been times when government tells people what to do, but it has discovered through a particularly difficult incident during this crisis involving someone travelling to Durham, it's discovered there's only a limitation to how much people can do if you simply tell them to do it. You have to actually show them and walk the walk as well. And I think some politicians have learned that people are willing to do an awful lot to take a huge hit, to sacrifice themselves for the common good, but they have to know that they trust those who are making the decisions, they trust what they're being told, and that those who are making decisions for them are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. I think that's been a very powerful piece of learning. Let's think about that a bit more, because we haven't actually touched on it so far in our conversation. We've referred to government often as a sort of abstract concept, and while there are people who are in authority, we haven't sort of reflected on what it means to be the person who models good government. Let's go back to the example of Jesus. You said it wasn't just important how he spoke out for those who were marginalised, but actually he embodied that in washing the disciples' feet, in touching those who were regarded as unclean. Can you help us think a little bit more about why faith might help us think about that integration between words in government and action? One of the things that I think made a difference when I was coming to faith was that I was running a refugee charity at the time and I'd gone to visit lots of projects. And when I started to do an alpha course, and I began to reflect on what I thought about Christians and, and frankly, some fairly caricatured views I had of what the church was. I suddenly realised that some of the most sacrificial projects I'd seen, people sometimes having destitute refugees living in their own homes with them, had been run by churches or Christians. And one of the reasons that I began to be open to what was being said by the church was seeing that they walked the walk as well as talked the talk. A wonderful young ex-gang member spoke to the first church I went to and said, people don't care what you know till they know that you care. And there is something about both of those things, about people being able to be out there and to show in action what love means. I think it's harder for politicians because everything they do is scrutinised. And actually, most politicians of all parties that I meet, I think, have come into politics because they want to make the world a better place. They've come into as a form of public service. Most of them work incredibly hard. Most of them engage with huge numbers of people in the local constituencies, and they do act to try to make their lives better. So I think it's too easy to assume that every time somebody says something and does something different, then they're a hypocrite and they didn't mean any of it. And we as Christians should understand more than anything that if you say one thing and every now and again you do something else, that doesn't mean that you didn't mean the thing you said. It doesn't mean the thing you said wasn't right. It means that you made a mess and you did because you're human and you sin and we understand that. 
So I think I have no problem with politicians making mistakes. I have no problem with them sometimes seeming not to be able to get it right every time or live out what they do. I think the challenge comes in trying to defend it when you do. And I just always think in politics, I mean, goodness, I've made enough mistakes. And you have to just hope and pray that if I were publicly seen to do something wrong, that I would have both the courage and the wisdom to stand up and say, do you know what? Yes, I messed up. I'm sorry. And I want to do it differently. And that's fine. So I suppose I think that's one of the things faith has taught me. It doesn't mean that I'm better at it, but that's one of the lessons I've taken from it, is that our actions and our words have to be congruent. One should be drawn from the other, but that doesn't mean we'll always get it right. And I think, as Rowan Williams has said on a previous episode of this podcast, you know, humility is the beginning and end of it all. And recognising that we're not perfect is actually a huge release that faith makes possible. For me, it was fantastic. It was the greatest liberation. I didn't have to try and save the world by myself. I didn't have to be right all the time. But it's so hard, isn't it? We forget all the time and we have to call ourselves back to it, to remembering that we're there, we're called to do our best, but we're not called to be perfect. You've articulated a journey that's involved a journey in government and a journey of your own faith. And that journey of faith, and in particular your ordained ministry, has come later on. How has that faith, as it's grown, and where you are now as an ordained minister in the Church of England, been impacted by your day job, your exercise of power? How does it affect the way you pray, the way you worship as a Christian disciple? One of the things I do is I pray for my political opponents which I don't think I did in years gone by, even in my early Christian days. And I pray for people I disagree with profoundly. That's been a biggest difference. At the moment, I spend quite a bit of time praying for our government, praying for my opposite numbers, and praying for people who are making decisions. Because I realise that if I were in government, they would be incredibly difficult. I'm very aware of the burden that they carry. So I pray for them. I think the other difference it has made to my prayer is it feels like a burden for all of us. And I just take all of that to God in prayer. And so one of the things, again, because when I'm sitting in in a room participating remotely, I feel quite powerless a lot of the time. I do still have the power, as we talked earlier, I still get to exercise, vote. But, you know, I feel there's so much I want to be doing and I can't do it. And I feel that acutely, both as a priest and as a a politician. But again, I feel all I can do is to do it as best I can and to recognise it's in God's hands anyway. So it's forced me back into greater dependence on God. And it's made me worship with perhaps more fervour and maybe more desperation in desperate times. Maeve Sherlock, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been a privilege. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>